Episode 4, Steps to Build an Inclusive School Garden. Do you ever find yourself barely able to hold your head above water? Waves of IEPs, data collection, assessments, parent conferences, not to mention lesson plans and seasonal activities are all crashing around you. You need help, but not just from anybody. Grab the lifeline that is the Help for Special Educators podcast. We will equip you with creative solutions and teacher-tested strategies so you can navigate the rewarding but difficult job as a special ed teacher. This is Lisa Goodell, your host. We are recording this at the beginning of April, and here in California, the weather is perfect. In fact, I'm recording this outside, so I hope that you can hear the chimes or birds. We have tulips and roses blooming, the leaves are coming out on the grapevines, and our almond trees, which bloomed in February, now have small almonds on the branches. All of this ties in to today's conversation that I'm having with John Ellis. She is a special ed teacher from Alabama, and she is passionate about getting her students digging in the dirt while they help with the class garden. She is going to tell us how they plant, grow, harvest, and cook what they grow. In fact, Dawn goes by the name Cultivating Exceptional Minds Online. So let's go inside and talk to Dawn. I want to say hi to Dawn. Hello, and I welcome you to the Help for Special Educators podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself and letting us know what population of special ed students you work with? Sure thing. I am a preschool special education teacher this year for three, four, and five-year-olds in an inclusion setting. So half of my class is typical peers, while the others have special education plans. Their abilities range from developmental delay all the way to other more severe diagnosis. But in the past, I've also had self-contained elementary units and resource inclusion positions as well. Why don't you tell us about how many years you have been doing your gardening project with your students and how did you get the idea? So five years ago, we actually started this process. Um, I was working on my ed specialist degree and I came across a journal article called Elementary School Garden Programs Enhancing science education for all learners. That was in the Teaching Exceptional Children journal. And I just found it so intriguing reading about how well, not just typical peers, but all learners were excelling by having their hands in the dirt. And that really was the time where this dream and idea began to blossom and grow I was a third-year teacher who was trying so hard to get her tenureship, and I approached my principal about possibly having a garden for my self-contained elementary kids that were working on alternate curriculum. That's really interesting that you got the idea from a journal. Is it possible to get a link to that journal that I can put in the show notes? Sure thing. I will get that to you. So I'll put that in the show notes for everyone who is listening so they can be inspired as well. So let's go ahead and talk about the steps that someone might take as they start doing their own gardening project. I think it's great that you've been doing this for so long. I'm sure that you will have a lot of tips. 
Absolutely. So what's maybe the first thing that someone should do or maybe the first thing that you did when you started? Well, when I started, part of that journal article just had to seek a space, a space that allows both light, protection from animals and community, but also a water source. Make sure that there is a thicket or a faucet that you have access to, to where watering can happen, whether that's on a timer or if that's, you know, manually watering the plants. I know we're in an urban area. And so we have a little courtyard area that was not being used at the time at all. So that was the area that I approached my principal since it was enclosed to our whole school, but it had direct sunlight and it had a water source. I just felt like that was a great area to use as a learning environment. So it sounds like that area is also cut off a little bit, maybe from students who are playing on the playground in case they get interested and want to come over. You're right. There's only one way in and one way out, and it's through the middle of our school through a hallway. So it does truly protect the space. In my mind, was a great area to where it was always protected and no one would come in and take the crops or eat the crops if they were animals, that kind of thing. But actually, um, a couple summers ago, we had some watermelon plants growing that we planted in May before we left school. And I had been watching it all summer long and hoping that it would ripen right before school. And one day I came in and there was a yellow spot where the watermelon was. And I mean, this watermelon was probably seven or eight pounds, but the watermelon was gone. Someone had stolen watermelon and I was not a happy camper. And anyway, so come to find out, I identified who it was and, and they apologized profusely. They didn't think anybody was watching it. And I was like, mm, I was. Yeah, make sure that it's in a good space that you can keep an eye out on things. Yeah, they probably thought they were doing you a favor because this poor watermelon was sitting there all summer and they thought, hey, no one's here to take it, so I might as well use it. That is funny. So that makes me think of a question. Do you live nearby then so you can keep track of the garden all during the summer or what do you do over different breaks? I am about 10 minutes away from the school, so it does allow me to kind of come and go. And I have a good relationship with my administration that allows me to have a key throughout the year so that I can access it both on the weekends when we have community support, but also to maintain it through break times. But that would also just lead me into, you know, as you're beginning a garden to make sure and seek out community support. It is so important for maintaining once all the new has worn off. So going back, the first step you said was to seek a space, a good spot to have your garden, have a good water source, light, and protection. And then number two, you're saying that it's good to have community support to help you fund your garden? Not only fund it, but also to help with the construction and the maintenance of that location as well. I know in the beginning, we had community partnerships with local nonprofits, one here in Alabama called Eat South who was real instrumental in coming in and, and coming alongside me to help build some and create lessons and have some resources. Um, the local co-op extension also was really helpful, but not only just nonprofits, also places like Home Depot and, and local churches or community groups like the Junior League have come in and helped on the weekend to create some of the bigger projects that the kids can't necessarily do 100%. 
equipment by themselves, such as like building the raised beds, or we have some water tables and different things like that, that we had to have some bigger hands and and knowledge to do, but also just helping with the weeding. Did you find that some of those people were already connected to the school, like maybe they were parents or grandparents, or did you just have to go out and cold call these people at different companies or retail places and ask for donations? Parental involvement hasn't been as strong as I necessarily would have liked. It definitely could increase, but yeah, it was more about building the relationships within the community. And one kind of branched into another. You meet one person with this nonprofit and they introduce you to someone else. Being involved in a large church, it allowed me to build and maintain relationships with others that had abilities or knowledge or resources that ended up being very beneficial for the garden creation too. Oh, I see. Were you able to get this funding the very first year and put in raised beds and all of that? It was definitely a slow process. No, um, the the raised beds really didn't come until here, probably two and a half. And from the very beginning, we started just in the classroom with planters, going to a local store and buying the small planters and a bag of dirt and seeds was much more affordable when I didn't have a lot of the funding to help the kids kind of build interest and, and background knowledge. From there, I wrote donation letters to different organizations and companies within the community. Some responded and donated a couple hundred dollars here and there, which was definitely beneficial. But I will say that first year, the local co-op extension was who was the most helpful. I think $250 donated from different organizations and the co-op kind of helped make that $250 come to fruition in our first round of what the garden looked like. And that was taking water barrels and cutting them in half horizontally and filling those with dirt after drilling holes in the bottom so the water could run out as our first kind of garden set up. That was an accessible point to where kids both in wheelchairs and kids that were mobile could use it and have their barrels that they help maintain and care for and weed and water that they were responsible for. So that's kind of how we got started. And that's terrific because you're really including students that are in wheelchairs because they can't necessarily get down on the ground and pull weeds or plants. So you had that up higher more at their level. That's a great idea. Right. That was a dream of mine and it came to fruition. Yes. Okay. Just reviewing. Number one was seek a good space for your garden. Two, generate some type of funding or community support to help pay for the project. And then number three, you were just kind of talking about starting small. How are the students able to participate in that? So you talked a little bit about the different heights for wheelchair users. Are there other things that you try to keep in mind so every single student can access the gardening? Yes. One of the things that we considered when starting our garden was to make sure that any of our beds had enough space between the walls and the raised beds or any corners that there was enough space to move along, whether you were in a wheelchair or you were mobile and walking, making sure that you have the dimensions or the spacing amounts to where any child could get through In addition, just making sure that you had various levels of raised beds that the kids could access. So that is a great step number four to keep accessibility in mind as you design your outdoor space for the garden. Okay, let's move on. And I want to ask about 
how the students really, really get involved? Is it pretty much you're doing it all and they just come help a little? Or how are you able to work this in with your curriculum? Do you learn about it in class and then go outside? Or do you run your class outside? That's funny that you would ask that question because that is something that we have really grown into. At the beginning, we really taught from the classroom and went out into the garden. But as the garden grew, we really turned it into an outdoor classroom where there was active learning happening both before, during, and after a lesson. We have a lot of sensory opportunities out in the garden that allow kids to kind of decompress when maybe the classroom's a little overstimulating. We have various activities out there, but then there are actually standard-based lessons that can be taught. We work on an alternate curriculum that is kind of, I wouldn't say modified, but it is for students with moderate to severe disabilities, but we would take those standards nonetheless and go teach them out in the garden. If we were learning about lines and angles, which was a fifth grade standard of mine, we would go and look at the raised beds and discuss and have them show me different lines and angles. If we were talking about parts of a plant, we would pull one up or we would discuss some that were growing in the raised beds about the leaves, the stems, the roots, the flowers. From there, like we would also just read books outside and answer those WH questions. I remember we've had science lessons out there as well, learning about the planets and using the chalkboard to draw them. So really just taking this space and making it an active classroom. This area provided space for sensory exploration, expression of their creativity, practice for inquiry, and develops those gross and fine motor skills in addition to those standards that are taught in that area. That's excellent. Now, you mentioned something about it being great for kids to get outside and decompress sometimes when they need to. Have you seen behavior improve with students where it has really been good to be outside part of the time? Yes, I have. Not only um, have we seen it with both our kids that may have a disability of some sort, we've actually seen it with some of our other kids in the school environment that are just having some behavior struggles that may be having to experience some in-school suspension and that kind of thing and and using the garden as a tool to kind of decompress and, and work through some of those anger and frustration issues that they are experiencing. So it's definitely been a positive environment throughout the school, not only just for special ed, but also the general ed as well. I just love that. I think the more we can get kids outside doing things, the better it is. Absolutely. I feel like it sticks a little more because they are truly like in the dirt and applying what they are learning in real time. Yes, yes. I can imagine kids sitting in class with a math book and you're trying to measure things and they want you to measure the book. They want you to measure the pencil. But how much more interactive, how much better would it be for the kids to actually go outside and practice their measuring if it's planting season? How far do you space those seeds apart? That type of thing. I think that's a great real world application that they're going to really remember in the future. Absolutely. Even teaching multiplication with arrays is really fun to teach with the raised beds and even several raised beds. It it complicates or increases the rigor of, of questions, but it really lets the kids apply knowledge, area and perimeter, so on and so forth. It, it really lends its hands to putting questions that sometimes are just in textbooks into real world applicable situations. And that's always something that we can use those ideas and develop them each year 
And as special educators, I know that we change grades different years, we change subjects or maybe even types of students. And so this type of thing can be adjusted and adapted as our careers change or as the needs of the students change. You're so right. Since I started this garden, I was originally in a self-contained elementary special education unit and since have moved to a preschool setting where we're more working on the developmental domains of cognitive, adaptive, those types of areas or domains. And so what we're doing in the garden is similar but different. We're working more on those sensory fine motor skills versus maybe some of those harder complex skills that we had once worked on. But we're not the only class that uses this garden. There are other second, third, and fourth grade classes that go out there and use the garden for some of those higher order of thinking processes. That's fabulous. The garden's out there. Everybody can use it no matter what standard they're working on. Okay, so thank you for sharing that with how you use that in your class with curriculum and the sensory activities. That would be step five. So then for step six, let's talk a little bit about the actual tasks that students can do. And this will vary with age, I'm sure, like you were just talking about your preschoolers versus third, fourth, fifth graders. But what kinds of things do you have your little ones doing? So for the little ones, they're actually big helpers with weeding, sometimes with the watering, although those water pills can actually become very heavy very quick. And identifying different plants that are currently growing in the raised beds based on the pictures to where we can match pictures to seeds or pictures to our stakes that are in the ground. But we've also just discussed various types of seeds and how they look using descriptive words. And then we have fruit bushes. And so talking about the blueberry bushes and and the different parts of the plant. Now let's get to the fun part, harvesting and then cooking. Do you actually cook with the produce that you grow or is there enough of it to do that? Do you send it home with the families? We really pride ourselves on being a seed to plate classroom. We start the growth process in our classroom. We actually have a heat lamp in the room to start the seeds growing to where the kids can help plant the seeds in the starter kits and see them begin to grow and then transplant them to the garden. From there, there are so many activities that we can do with measurement and drawings and various things to show that growth process in a journal. But when it is ready, the best part is to see the kids pull the vegetables from the ground or pick the the fruits. And we really do actually cook them at school, cooked carrots and different types of greens and had broccoli. We've also had taken the radishes that we have grown and made radish dip. And I find that the kids are a lot more likely to try vegetables when they have grown them themselves. We've really had a great willingness from the kids to try these different types of items in our classroom. So yes, we actually have a hot plate and different basic cooking items that we've had donated through Donors Choose. And we use those to cook the items that we have grown in the garden and the kids really seem to enjoy it. Of course, because they have buy-in. They're like farmers. They've done all this work all season, and so they want to benefit from the fruit of their labors. So I think that's awesome. (laughs) That is so great. Now, you are from Alabama. It's warm there. 
how long is the growing season? Can you do this all during the winter months or is there a time frame where everything goes dormant for the garden? Um, there is a time when the garden is dormant and, and that's kind of um, in that December, January, February range. We typically take all the plants off of the garden and we put, try to pull up all the weeds that we possibly can, cover it with a tarp to where there's as limited growth as possible during those times. And it's usually just a wet, cold season. I feel like in Alabama, we don't get a ton of snow, but it's just kind of cold and miserable. And then towards the end of mid to end of February, we pull the tarps back off and start preparing those raised beds for spring planting. Planting can actually start in the classroom in January in our incubator. So the kids are still learning, but we're not in the garden quite as much. That makes total sense. Well, I think we've gotten a good sense of how you run your program, how you are able to get some funding for it, how you use it to tie right into the lessons and concepts that the students are learning in class. I especially like how they're outside learning, not just inside, sitting, not moving, focused on the textbook. I appreciate how you just get them out there digging in the dirt. I love, love, love this program. And I hope some of our listeners get more information and they either try it themselves or maybe there's people out there that do have a garden, but this might give them some ideas to take it to the next level, to go out and maybe get some community support. Or like you said, don't forget donors choose. That's a great organization that teachers can get funding for, for all types of projects. I have benefited from donors choose over the years as well. Absolutely. I think I've had over 25 projects and they totally vary um, from garden needs to technology to books. If your district allows it, it's been very beneficial. Yes, I, I thank you for allowing me to talk about the garden and my experiences with it. And just want to remind people, start small. Active learning can happen in the smallest planter, but it can grow into much bigger dreams and realities. I just want to add something. I was at a memorial service for a family friend and he was a farmer his whole life. And they shared that even when he was five years old, he would say, I'm going to be a farmer when I grow up. That's what I want to do. And later on, when he was in school, he had trombone, he had different activities to do, but he said, oh, I would rather go drive the tractor than even play my trombone or do anything else. And so he lived his whole life as a farmer, very successful at it. It was his passion. So who knows what's going to happen with one of your students or one of the students of the teachers listening to this podcast. You could really help a student find a lifelong passion, whether it is their profession or they just do gardening in their home. I am so glad that you were able to come on the show and share with us. You're right. And if listeners are interested more about starting a garden, there is a blog post on my blog just talking about some of the seven essentials for starting a garden if they're wanting to learn more. We will link to that. And you did mention a couple of other places that helped you. And so I'll try to get a list of those all in the show notes so you can link and get more information. Why don't you also tell us how people can contact you? Sure. So the blog is cultivatingexceptionalminds.com. I'm also on different social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. And all of those have the handle of at cultivating exceptional minds. So there you can kind of follow along in the teaching journey that I have and all that we're experiencing. Uh, in addition, we have a, a TPT store, which is um, Cultivating Exceptional Minds as well, that has teaching resources for special ed and garden materials as well. 
And just to let the audience know, Dawn does a lot more than just gardening. And so I'm sure that I will be having her on the show again, maybe for a whole interview or maybe just sharing tips and tricks along the way. Thank you for your time, Dawn. This is excellent and we'll be in touch. I want to remind listeners that I am asking people to send in some voice memos or you can even send in written stuff regarding different topics that we'll be talking about. And Dawn has sent in some voice memos, so you'll be hearing more from her in different episodes. This episode will be releasing Easter weekend, so hopefully, if you haven't had the whole week off of school, you at least are in the middle of a long weekend. I want to share something I heard a while ago which made me pause and reflect on how I deal with stress. Often, what we do to wind down during the school year might actually be more about numbing ourselves from whatever is bothering us, rather than doing something that is truly life-giving. So think about what you normally do to relax. Is it rejuvenating to your soul or is it more like an anesthesia, which knocks you out so you don't feel the pain? Many types of entertainment, surfing social media, watching TV or Netflix, even binge drinking or eating will just temporarily get your mind off the real problem. And that's okay. I'm not saying entertainment is wrong, but just take note that what rejuvenates you might be different than what you normally do to relax. In today's episode, we listen to Dawn talking about how the garden needs to be tended with a safe location, frequent watering, even weeding so the plants can grow and thrive. And during the winter, the garden goes dormant. It rests so it can again produce in the spring, summer, and fall. So think again. Think about what experiences invigorate you. What were you doing? Was it time with family? Was it taking a walk in nature? I find that moving my body through simple exercise really helps. I have also found that when I help others, lending a hand to a friend, making a meal, calling a relative, maybe it's more mindfulness related or a spiritual practice that helps you. Maybe it's being creative somehow. Maybe even just getting outside my classroom at lunchtime and turning the jump rope so other kids can jump rope. It's all getting me away from what I might normally think about. So when I'm doing all of these things, I find that I'm also helping myself. All of that is like tending the garden, but we are tending our own garden, the garden of our soul. And that's the stuff that makes us stronger and helps us grow, helps us be resilient through the hard times. So before the weekend is over or whenever you next have a break, think about what you can do that will be life-giving to your soul and not life-draining. You can think about this for yourself, your family, and others. I hope it will fill you up so you can find strength for each day and make it to the end of the school year. If you have a response to this, maybe even a story or an example of how you are rejuvenated, which will in turn encourage others, please send it to me at the email address, helpforspecialeducators at gmail.com. Voice memos, when we get to hear from you. Today's voice memo is actually a question from a student who's going to be a teacher. I hope some of you will respond with an answer that I can play in a future show. Hi, my name's Kayleen Durbin. I'm from California, and I have a question. People say that your first year teaching is the hardest, but I guess I just don't understand why. What about it is so hard? 
To respond to the question, you can post in the Facebook page, facebook.com slash groups slash help for special educators podcast, or you can send me a written or audio file to my email at help for special educators at gmail.com. The show notes for this episode can be found at lisagadell.com forward slash four. I would also just love it if you would share this show on your social media. Please let other people know about it so we can together encourage other special educators all over the world. Now, when I start to get stressed or overwhelmed about school stuff, I find it helps to take a moment to slow down, stop, and focus on my breathing. Sometimes, I also might say the serenity prayer aloud or in my head. Here it is. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I might also add a few of my own words. Here's a sample for us special educators. Help us to listen and truly understand our students. Please give us words actions, and solutions which will help in difficult situations. May our classrooms be peaceful places where teachers, staff, and students learn and thrive. After that, I try to go out and find someone else to help because helping others keeps me from selfishly dwelling on my own problems. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you heard something helpful during this episode that you can implement in your teaching. Remember, you are amazing. What you do makes a difference, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Go find someone else to encourage, because they probably need to be reminded that they are amazing too.